Thank you, Alexa. Wonderful job. Appreciate that so much. Take your Bibles and turn back with me this morning to Matthew chapter 24. We don't usually take the time to recognize birthdays. Obviously, there are so many of us that it would take a while. But I do want to recognize one this morning. Brother Olin is 92 today. I'd like to think that I would be in as good a shape at 92 as he is, but I'm not that good a shape now, so. I'm more like my cousin who went for his yearly checkup. Doctor came back and said, Jerry, you're in pretty good shape for a man of 65. Too bad you're 35. Matthew chapter 24. Some people look at the conditions in our world and they think that we most assuredly are approaching the end of the world. The world seems to be in chaos. In fact, I read across an article that said, it is a gloomy moment in the history of our country. Not in the lifetime of most men has there been so much grave and deep apprehension. Never has the future seemed so unpredictable as at this time. The domestic economic situation is in chaos. Our dollar is weak throughout the world. Prices are so high as to be utterly impossible. The political cauldron seethes and bubbles with uncertainty. It is a solemn moment of our troubles. No man can see the end. When do you think that was written? Last week? Last month? Last year, no. That, sta- that statement appeared in Harper's Weekly Magazine in October of 1857. As we begin again this morning to look at the Lord's predictions concerning the end times, I think it's important to remember that the purpose of prophecy is not to entertain the curious, but rather to encourage the committed. Let me set the stage for you. What Jesus is going to begin with in verse number 32 is in answer to a question that was posed by his disciples in the third verse of chapter 24. They said, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus first told them of the signs that would indicate the tribulation period that immediately preceded His coming. The first three and a half years of the tribulation are described in verses 4 through 14. And then in verse 15, He told them of an unmistakable sign called the abomination that causes desolation, which would be the sign that the start of the last three and a half years of the tribulation. Those are described in verses 15 through 31. The tribulation period will end with the appearing of the Lord Himself. Now, in beginning in verse number 32, the Lord gives a partial answer to the when part of that question that the disciples had posed. I want you to notice four things with me this morning. First of all, I want us to look at the parable of the fig tree. Verses 32 through 35. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. 
when its branches has already become tender and put forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see these things, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will by no means pass away. Well, the first thing that we really need to look at is what is the meaning of the fig tree? It's the parable of the fig tree, but what does he mean when he talks about the fig tree? Some hold that the fig tree represents Israel, and that the sprouting of the fig tree represents when Israel became a nation again in 1948. That is, of course, a very important and momentous part of history. But I've come to believe that the fig tree here is not specifically dealing with Israel becoming a nation, but rather it is like Jesus so often does, is an illustration from nature that he uses in his preaching. Jesus' comment on the fig tree was a reference to the reliable cycles of the fig tree. The life of a fig tree follows a predictable pattern. The leaves appear, and then summer follows. When you see the leaves, you know that summer is near. I think we can see this particularly when we look at the parallel account in Luke chapter 21 and verses number 30, 29, 30, and 31. It says, look at the fig tree and all the trees, and when they are already budding, and you see and know for yourselves that summer is now near. So you also, when you see these things happen, know that the kingdom of God is near. He uses it a parable to tell them about how to notice when the signs of His coming are drawing near. It would be much like today when when we say, when when you begin to see politicians campaigning, when you begin to see them making their commercials, what do you know? You know that the election is around the corner. Not only do we need to understand what the fig tree represents, but we need to understand what Jesus meant when he said, this generation. What generation then is Jesus referring to? Verse 34, Jesus said, Surely I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Jesus assures that when these signs appear, that he is foretold that his return is near. <coughs> there are those <coughs> signs which have, he said, well, we, we will see in greater and lesser degree all throughout history. But there is a combination of those signs, the increasing tempo of those events that will mark the end of those last days. And there are, of course, those unique signs such as the abomination that causes desolation, followed by the great tribulation. It says in verse 24, uh, chapter 24 and verses 4 through 28, and there will be great signs in heaven. All of these will indicate that His coming is imminent. The generation that sees those those things happen will also see the return of Christ. Again, the problem is, what generation then are we talking about? Some say he's referring to the generation that was alive when he spoke those words 2,000 years ago. So 
Certainly some of Jesus' predictions in Matthew chapter 24 were fulfilled with the destruction of Jerusalem and of the temple. But if you read again that verse, it says, until all these things take place. So Jesus made predictions in Matthew chapter 24 that were not fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem and of the temple. So that can't be the answer. Others say that Jesus is referring to the generation that was alive when Israel became a nation in 1948. That was a, <clears throat> the position of Hal Lindsey. Many of you probably have read his books down through the year. He wrote a, he wrote a book entitled The Late Great Planet Earth in 1970. He took the reestablishment of Israel in 1948 as the budding of the fig tree. And because the genealogical list in the Bible often defined generations into 40-year increments, he took the word generation to mean 40 years. If you add 40 years to 1948, you come up with the date of 1988. Many believe that he would re- Jesus would return in 1988. But as you know, that did not happen. There is a sense in which this will be true. I believe that it is a, there is a promise in this verse that that generation of, of Jewish people living when those signs begin will indeed be the generation that will see the coming of the king. But there's also another way to look at this word generation, gene, is a word which means not time period, but a people group. In this case, it would be a promise that the Jewish race would not pass away until these things take place. I don't have to remind you that it is obvious that there's been a supernatural, divine uh, empowerment and protection of the Jewish people so that they have not ceased to exist all down through the years. Dr. Adam Clark, one of the old commentators, wrote, this generation means this race. The Jews will not cease from being a distinct people till all of the counsels of God relative to them and the Gentiles have been fulfilled. So in other words, I believe the last two of those things will be true of that generation. Secondly, the parallel to the days of Noah. Beginning in verse number 36, But of the day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Two things that I want you to note. No, first one, no one will know the day nor the hour. In spite of all the signs that Jesus has given, he says no one will be able to predict the precise time of his return. No, not even the angels in heaven. And when Jesus says no one knows the day nor the hour, he does not mean that some sharp Bible teacher is going to be able to come along and calculate the year and the month. Besides being a ridiculous way 
to get around a clear teaching of the Bible, all those who have tried to do that have failed. One such was Edgar Wisnut. He was a retired NASA engineer and an aspiring Bible teacher. His calculations led him to write a book entitled 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Come in 1988. And that didn't happen. He wrote 89 Reasons Why Jesus Will Come in 1989. He was wrong on both counts. Some are puzzled by the idea that that Jesus says that he doesn't know the hour of his own return. And yet, if Jesus is God, how can he not know? In Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, the Apostle Paul tells us that Jesus chose to limit his divine powers when he became a man. The fact that he did not know then does not mean that he does not know now. The fact that he voluntarily limited his divine attributes while here in human form does not mean that he does not know now that he is back in heaven. Secondly, we have to look at the days of Noah. The story of Noah is obviously a well-known Old Testament example of God's judgment. The point of those verses is that the flood came very suddenly, and those that were unprepared drowned it. This past week, much time and talk was given to where and when Hurricane Isaac would make landfall. The better question, of course, was, will the people be ready? When Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans, The residents had had years to prepare, but the city was not ready, and thousands died. For 120 years, as Noah built the ark, he also warned and preached of God's coming judgment. Noah proved his sincerity by building a gigantic box that could serve no other purpose practical purpose other than floating. Remember that Noah built the ark on dry land, far from the sea, and that he built it in a world that had never seen rain. Not even an occasional shower to remind the people of what was coming. And as Noah made his preparations, the world went on about their business, giving their attention to the day-to-day details of their lives. And they did not prepare for the coming judgment by repenting of their sins and turning to God. In the same way, Jesus says, in spite of the forewarning signs of the majority of the unsaved in the tribulation period will devote themselves entirely to the normal demands of everyday life. It's not that the activities that they were engaged in were necessarily sinful, but they were too wrapped up in the everyday activities of life to give any thought to eternity. And as a result, the coming of the Lord will come so suddenly 
and so unexpectedly upon them that they will not have time to prepare. Third, there is a picture, a picture of two men working in a field. Verse number 40. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and the other left. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. He tells of a sudden separation. The problem with these verses is understanding what is meant by the words taken and left. And so I'd invite you in verse number 40 to underline first the word taken and secondly the word left. Does taken mean taken away in judgment and left mean left behind to prosper? Or does taken mean taken to heaven in the rapture and left behind means left behind on the earth to face judgment? It is a sense, in a sense, the question is whether this verse is talking about the rapture or the second coming. I've heard many sermons, in fact, I probably preached a few, that use this text as a text for the rapture. I don't believe that's what it's talking about. I believe this is better understood to describe the second coming. The ones, let, the ones taken from the field and the mill are the unsaved who will be removed into judgment when Christ returns at the end of the tribulation period. The ones left in the field and at the mill when He returns are the saved. And they will now enter into the Lord's earthly millennial kingdom. This, of course, is a reverse of the order of events which occurred at the rapture when we saw the saved taken away from earth to meet the Lord in the air and the unsaved left on the earth to face God's judgment in the tribulation. It's followed by a a stern warning. There are in fact three imperatives found in verses 42 through 44. Imperatives mean commands. And I'd invite you to underline these three verbs in your Bible. The first imperative is found in verse 42 where he says, Watch. Watch. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. Does the command to watch mean that we're to try to to figure out exactly when the Lord is coming and set that date? No, it simply means knowing and doing the will of God as we await His return. The Lord further identifies what this watching entails in the second imperative in verse number 43. No, but know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed the house to be broken into. The command is the word no. And any rational person, if he knew that his house was going to be burglarized, even if he didn't know the specific 
time, but he knew the general time. He would be keenly alert and watchful. The last imperative in this section is found in verse 44, and it is in the words, be ready, be ready. Therefore, you also be ready. This call for readiness is a call for personal readiness. For it says you, and in our language, it is the plural you. If you have a King James Version, it says ye, which helps you to understand that it is a plural you. It means you, all of you. The only way to be prepared for the coming of Jesus is to be in a constant state of readiness. Charles Swindoll tells the following story. He says, I worked in a machine shop for four and a half years alongside a fellow named George. His job was to sweep and clean out the shavings underneath the huge lathes and machines we were running. I remember hearing him sing hymns as he worked, and many of them had to do with the coming of Christ, such as in the sweet by and by and when the roll is called up yonder. Late one Friday afternoon, about ten minutes to quitting time, we were all tired, and I looked at George and said, George, are you ready? He said, uh-huh. But I looked at him, and he was all dirty. He was just obviously not ready. In fact, he looked like he was ready to keep on working. And so I said, aren't you ready to go home? And he said, yeah, well, I'm ready. And I said, well, look, man, you're not ready. Look. You got to go clean up. No, he said, let me show you something. And so he unzipped his coveralls, and underneath were the neatest, cleanest clothes you can imagine. He had them all ready. All he did when the whistle blew was just unzip his coveralls, step out of them, walk up, and punch out his clock, and he was gone. He said, You see, I stay ready to keep from getting ready just like I'm ready for Jesus. The fourth and final thing today is the proof of faithfulness. Verse number 45, Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give, give them food in due season? Blessed is the servant whom his master, when he comes, will find him so doing. Assuredly, I say to you, he will make him ruler over all his goods. But if that evil servant says in his heart, My master is delaying his coming, begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and an hour which he is not aware of. And he will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the, with the hypocrites and there will be a weeping and gnashing of teeth. The Lord now contrasts a faithful servant and that of an unfaithful servant or an evil servant. And the absence of the Lord really only reveals what is in the heart of each servant. There are two paths that lie open before each of us. We can forget about the Lord. We can live for ourselves. We can indulge our every craving, never thinking of the Lord or have his plan for our life. If we do that, at some unknown hour, we will stand before him and we will face his wrath. Or we can live knowing that 
this life, our possessions, our abilities, everything that we hold in this life, we hold as a trust from God. And someday we may stand before Him and hear the words, Well done. Well done. Someone put it this way. Live each day so that you will not be afraid of tomorrow or ashamed of today. Let me summarize what we know about the second coming. Number one, Jesus Christ is coming again. The Lord has promised. His word is sure. The words of Jesus are more enduring than the stars and more certain than the sunrise. No one ever needs to doubt His promises. Secondly, we, can be, we cannot be certain as to the exact timing. It has not been and it never will be God's plan for any man to know the exact timing of His coming. And third, because we know He's coming, but we don't know exactly when He's coming, we should always be ready because we will not have time to get ready. Therefore, watching for the Lord's return should be a powerful stimulus to living right. The Apostle Paul wrote to his young friend in the ministry, Titus. And in Titus chapter 2 and verses 12 and 13, he wrote, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly and righteously and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope, the glorious appearing of the great God, our Savior, Jesus Christ. So I would ask you this morning, does the reality of Christ's return impact your daily life? It should, and it can, if we will allow the Lord to impress upon us the reality of His coming. He tells us in our text today that one day, as people are going busily about being occupied with the daily affairs of their life, the heavens are going to be torn in two, and the trumpet of the Lord is going to sound. Some are going to wonder what's happening, and others will realize that the end is at hand. Falling to the ground in agony, many will realize the Lord that they have rejected is real, that the sermons that they heard were true, and that it is far too late for them to do anything about it. Others will turn with their heads toward heaven with a smile. They'll be ready to receive their King because they've been serving Him for years and years. While some cry out in anguish, others' hearts will cry out with joy, even so, Lord Jesus, come. The question is, are you ready? Let's pray. Father, we thank You for <clears throat> the reminder that we need to live our lives in the presence of eternity. Realizing that this is the only time that we have been given to make that decision about where we will be spending eternity. 
that every man and every woman will make a decision about eternity while they live here. It's in this life and this life only that we have an opportunity to choose. Father, I pray that we be able to look in our own hearts this morning and understand whether we are truly ready for your coming. If even the thought of your coming strikes us with fear, then something's not right in our lives. Maybe we're not right in our fellowship with you or we don't have a fellowship with you because we've never really established a relationship. Father, I pray that you'd speak to our hearts this morning and help us to realize where we are. Maybe there's some who need to come to the altar and just spend some time with you. Maybe there are others who need to make decisions about salvation. Maybe there are others who need to make decisions about service or church membership. But Lord, whatever it is that you want to do in our hearts and lives this morning, we want to turn this time over to you. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.